Greg up here. I'm going to steal his music stand. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. A special welcome to you if you're visiting with us. I want to just call your attention. Uh, if you are on our email mailing list, you received a uh, link to a survey that we've launched this week. And uh, we have uh, paper copies of them at the Welcome Center. If you would like to do one uh, handwritten and turn it in, these are uh, anonymous surveys, so you don't need to sign it or put your name on it. There's just a, a few questions that uh, are asking about uh, your impressions of who we are, where you think God is leading us, what's most important for us. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to gather all the information from these surveys and pool them into a, a, a conversation list that we're going to bring to some different focus groups, and we're going to invite you all to be a part of different focus groups. And so uh, the first step is to have everybody fill out the surveys and give us your first impression. So if you haven't done that or if you would be willing to do that, um, it, it's, I can't understate how important it is to fill out the surveys and to turn them in because it is a part of us listening to, together and to uh, seeking God's uh, voice in our lives. So your participation in that survey would be very much appreciated. We are in our second week of our new series that we're calling One, which is a market-up series in the book of Philippians. Uh, and we are going through kind of chapter by chapter over the next uh, now seven weeks as we lead up to Easter. And so we've invited everyone to bring their Bibles and a pen or a highlighter, a marker. If you haven't uh, brought your Bible, that's okay. We'll have the words on the screen or you can follow along in the Bible that's in the uh, rack in front of you. How many of you have ever written a letter? Yeah? Most people have written a letter, maybe even if it's through email these days, an electronic letter, uh, and you, we've sent them to friends, to loved ones. Uh, often the letters begin with uh, an initial greeting, I miss you, I love you, uh, I hope you're doing well, I wish the best for you. At some point, though, uh, you assume that people want to know a little bit about who you are, how, how things are going for you, and so we, we give a little information about what's happening with us and, and, and some highlights of what's going on in our lives. And, and as we talked about last week, as we introduced uh, the, the letter of, uh, to the Philippians, we, we talked about how the book of Philippians isn't just a book, and, and it's not even really a book, it, it's a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to one of the churches that he started, and he was sending them greetings, uh, telling them that uh, he had received the gifts that they had sent through a, a man named Epaphroditus who had come to, to help him and to bring some support and resources, and that he was now going to be sending him back to them. And of course, they would want to know how he was doing, what was going on for him, because they had heard that he was in prison. And we talked about how Paul uh, had been traveling throughout the Mediterranean world. We have uh, some Bible maps that we looked at. We'll look at those again real quick. And uh, the, the biblical world was kind of around the Mediterranean Sea. And you can kind of see down here where it says promised land in Jerusalem is where a lot of the stories of the Bible happened in Egypt. And, and, and Paul's missionary journeys then took him up around the north side of the Mediterranean. We can go to the next slide and we can see some of the journeys that he took uh, all around the Mediterranean up into the Aegean Sea. And then you can see up in the north of the Aegean Sea there, it's a little off the screen here, but where the red arrow is is where the city of Philippi is. And he went to Philippi and, and started the missionary journey up into the area that is called Macedonia and towards what is now modern-day Europe. 
And as he went to these different places and uh, began to start these churches, people often were not really excited about the fact that he was there. Uh, when he went to Philippi, you can read in the, uh, the chapter of Acts 16 where it tells the, the backstory of he and Timothy and Silas and Luke going to the city and how they met a, a girl who was possessed by a spirit and uh, some men were using her for fortune telling and this spirit allowed her to, to tell people's fortunes and, and they were making money off of her and getting rich and, and Paul and his companions were able to cast out this spirit and to free this girl from the oppression, well, these guys weren't very happy about it. They were pretty upset, and so they, uh, they dragged him before the, the city officials, and all the people came out and said, these people are causing an uproar, and they ended up stripping them and beating them and throwing them in prison. And so they didn't have a, a real warm reception in the city of Philippi. And now, as Paul's writing these uh, some weeks, months, we're not ex- exactly sure how far later, he's in another town probably Ephesus scholars suggest, further down on the Aegean Sea, and he's in prison again. God had miraculously released them from prison, and the the jailer and his whole family came to Christ through the experience of of God's miraculous power, uh, freeing Paul and his companions from prison. But now he's in prison again, and he's writing to them because they've heard that he's experiencing the same kind of thing in this new town, and they're worried about him. In the midst of a culture hostile to the gospel, Paul was wanting the Philippians to recognize that it, the, threat to, the greatest threat to the church doesn't off, always come from outside the church, but often comes from within inside the church. And so in his very greeting last week, we talked about how he addressed them as saints. And we talked about how that term saint is a little difficult for us, but the term saint simply means those who are set apart for God's purposes. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're holier than anyone else or better than anyone else. It means that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And as we join our lives with God in relationship to Jesus Christ, his mission becomes our mission and our lives take on a greater meaning and purpose as we become carriers of the good news message that God's love through Jesus Christ is available to all people. That God wants to reconcile every human being into relationship with him so they too can experience his mercy and his love and his grace. And because of the advancement of the gospel into the world, Paul is joyful. He's excited. But in this letter, after he brings greetings and tells them how much he loves them and his hope and his prayers that their love will abound more and more because that's what will really be the sign to those around them of God's love at work in their lives, he wants to share with them a little bit about what's going on in his life because that's what they're concerned about. So in chapter 1, verse 12, we pick up the letter where he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. I want you to underline the three words, advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear, and you can underline, it has become clear, throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Underline for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters that have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And you can underline, proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Underline envy and rivalry there. 
but others out of goodwill, underlying goodwill in contrast to envy and rivalry. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is, underline, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Underline, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice, and then circle, rejoice. We're going to pause there and talk a little bit about what's going on, because what I'm going to suggest this morning is that uh, the verses 12 through 30, which we're going to try and get through this morning, have an overarching flow that that Paul has in mind that that can get lost if we focus in too much on the detail. Now, there's a lot here. It's really rich, and we could probably spend several weeks just going through these verses. But what I want to do is I want to pull out the the overarching outline of what Paul's uh, explanation is here for, for the Philippian people, and hopefully that will help us to see both what his goals are, but also how we can apply it to us. So a little bit about me, Paul says. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on for me. I'm sure you're all wondering how I'm doing. And he says, essentially, it's all good. It's all good. But that doesn't really jive with his circumstances, does it? If we think about what we just read, he's in prison. He's got opponents who are rivals of him, who are using his opportunity for him to be in prison to take advantage and to uh, hopefully get one up on him. He's about to go to trial for crimes that he didn't commit, and he doesn't even really know whether he'll live or die at the end of the trial, and yet he writes back to the Philippians, he says, it's all good. Why, Why would he say that? Well, if we go back and look again, he says... I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. See, Paul's goal, his whole focus in life, now that he has become a missionary for Jesus Christ, is for the advancement of the gospel. And and sure, his circumstances aren't one that he would wish on anybody. They aren't circumstances that we would want to, to be in. And yet, in retrospect, as he's looking back at what God is doing in and through his life, he's recognizing that as a result of his imprisonment, the gospel is moving forward. People are hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. They're coming to faith in Christ, and he can rejoice because in spite of his suffering, in spite of his troubles, he sees that God is using all things for his good. He talks about how unexpectedly, all of the palace guard are, are hearing. It's, it's become clear to them. This idea that it's become clear is it, they're, they're understanding that Paul is in chains for a crime he didn't commit. He didn't really commit a crime. He's there because he's preaching forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and people don't like that. He lives in a culture that, that, that believes in a, in a pantheon of gods. In fact, ultimately, not only can you worship any god that you want, but if, if you really want to be a good Roman citizen, you also have to venerate Caesar as divine. And so in a Roman culture that, that, that ha, has all of these options to say, we, we really need to tolerate everybody. And Paul comes and says, you know what? Salvation only comes through Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. You can imagine that there'd be a lot of people who might be a little upset. Well, that's a little exclusive, Paul. 
That's a little narrow-minded to say that there's only one way to God. And, and what about Caesar? I mean, how can you be a good citizen and, and, and speak any kind of a word that doesn't lift up Caesar and the, and the government of Rome as the highest of power and authority in the land? Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a culture like that? A lot of people these days are beginning to recognize that the American empire has a lot of parallels and similarities to first century Rome. And the tolerance that we preach and the, the, the politics and the citizenship of, of country before all else and, and the, 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 uh, uh, the, the wealth and the, the, the proliferation of, of goods and, and living the high life and all of the things that, that Rome represented even their military strategy was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. We, we provide peace to the world through military strength. Many people are calling our military strategy in the world today the Pax Americana, the peace of America, spreading the peace and the democracy of American culture through military strength. How much of a contrast has the gospel become to our own American culture. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not speaking against America. I am a proud American citizen, and the freedoms that we have in this country have been hard fought and won by men and women who have sacrificed their lives and been very, the very examples of the, the kind of love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. But we need to also be careful to hold on to those core values and freedoms for which those men and women have died and not miss the fact that if we make our country better than God, then we also can fall victim to becoming idolatrous in our own view of what it means to be Americans and citizens in this country. You see, Paul says that the whole palace guard is beginning to see all these military men were, were beginning to understand that, that he, he was in prison for this gospel message that said that there is a way to find forgiveness and value in relationship with God. And yet even then, some other believers were, were envious and, and in rivalry with Paul, and they wanted to use this to, his advantage, to their advantage. Now, I don't know about you, but do you ever feel like there's, there's no envy or rivalry in the Christian church in America, is there? No, there's no envy or rivalry. I mean, I mean, you know, as a pastor in the church, growing up through seminary and talking about becoming a pastor, you know what, is, what one of the first questions that people ask you is when you're a pastor? How big is your church? How American of a question, right? How big is your church? Well, my church is bigger than your church. Well, how, how many numbers do you have? And how fast are you growing? And how many people have you baptized this year? Now, all of those, again, are good measurements that we need to understand about. Are we healthy? Are we growing? But too often, I think that we can uh, accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then allow envy and rivalry and selfish ambition to creep into our understanding of what does it mean to be Christians, and we can focus on our church and our brand of the faith and, and whether we're better than other people. And we hoard our toys, and we don't like to get along with our brothers and sisters down the street, and we compare and contrast. 
You see, Paul says it's true that some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love. Again, he he wants to bring them back to understand that the core value of the Christian life is all about love. Knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But it doesn't matter. He says, what does it matter? But it doesn't matter, right? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Again, circle the word rejoice. Throughout this whole letter, Paul is talking about the joy of the Christian life. And it doesn't come from success. It doesn't come from worldly uh, wealth. It doesn't come from comfort. Paul in prison, potentially on the verge of losing his own life for the gospel, is joyful because he sees the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on from there and he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Underline, I will continue to rejoice. And circle, rejoice. You see, now what he's doing is he's turning his perspective from my current circumstances. So Paul has taken a look at his current circumstances and he said, It's all good. And now he's beginning to look ahead and say, but what lies around the corner for me? As I look ahead, how do I think about the future of my life? I know that your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He is confident in the future that his deliverance is at hand. Now, this word deliverance here is the same word that is used in other places in the New Testament for the word salvation. He's talking about his own salvation. My, my salvation is assured, he's saying. He doesn't have to worry about the future because your prayers and the power and provision of the Holy Spirit in my life will work out for my salvation. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Underline ashamed, and underline courage. And then underline, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I, I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire, underline I desire, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary, underline, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you, underline, for your progress and joy in the faith, and circle joy. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Let's pause there again and Look at this section as he looks to the future of where his life is heading. See, Paul talks very little, bit, very little about his personal condition. Instead of reporting how he was doing, Paul talks about how the gospel was doing. And that God not only works in spite of, but through his difficult circumstances. And that as we look to our future and understand where God is at work in our lives, we also have to understand that we can rejoice even though we might not know what the future outcome 
of our circumstances might be. And he focuses on your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ. I think it's important for us to to pause to understand that Paul's perspective is that in the midst of his circumstances, the prayers of the Philippian people and the power of the Holy Spirit were intimately connected. Now, we don't often understand how our prayers and God's answering those prayers works out. That's part of the mystery of God. And yet we know from the Bible and from Paul's perspective here that one of the most powerful things that we can do, one of the greatest gifts that we can give to one another and to other people is to pray for their salvation, to pray for their deliverance, to pray for God's work in their life and for the power of the Holy Spirit to be active and present in all of their circumstances. You see, Paul, who's, who's an apostle, is asking these humble Christians in Philippi to bless him by praying for his circumstances and to pray for God's Spirit to be at work in him because he does not want to be ashamed. He wants to have courage. Why why would he want to have courage? Well, he's about to go before the governors and the rulers in trial and testify about Jesus Christ. And he wants to have courage that, that he will not put Jesus to shame, but he will, he will make a solid defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this courtroom situation where he might actually lose his life. And he knows that in his own strength, in his own wisdom, in his own power, he's not going to be able to do that. He needs the, the Spirit of God working in him to allow him to be able to accomplish this goal, this hope that he has, to make a solid defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ as he answers for this crime that he did not commit. See, the outcome of his life is uncertain. But either way, he knows that with the power of the Spirit at work in his life, Christ will be exalted. The name of Jesus will be lifted up through his life, if he he gets through this trial, or even if he dies. Either way, his goal is that the name of Jesus be lifted up, and he has confidence that that will happen through their prayers and through the Spirit's help. It's interesting where he says, you know, my, my desire is what? To depart and be with Christ. You know, if I really thought about it, and I believe this, this gospel message, I believe this truth about, about what's happened, what God has made available in Jesus Christ, man, it would be far better to go and be with Christ than to stay here in this world. I desire, if, if you really ask me, Philippians, my desire would be to, to go ahead and die because then I'm with Christ and I don't have to deal with this stuff anymore. But, he says, it is far better, it is far more necessary if I stay, because if I stay, that means fruitful labor on your behalf. It means that I continue to encourage you, to mentor you, to challenge you in your own progress and joy in the faith. And you see, even in his own personal preferences and his desires, Paul subordinates what he wants. Paul subordinates what his wishes would be. Paul subordinates his ultimate goal in life for his, himself to the needs of the Philippians and to those who God may call him. Men and women, how often do we live up to this example of the Apostle Paul? How often is it, do we start by focusing on what, what our preferences are, what our desires are, what our needs are? When we come to church and we, we take surveys and we, we talk about what do we want, 
We often focus on so many of the, the wrong things that, that we miss the, the ministry that God is inviting us to experience with and on behalf of one another. You see, Paul is very subtly trying to give them an example to say, if I am taking this perspective in my situation, you Philippians should also take that kind of perspective in your situation. You see, it's more necessary for me to stay, even though I wouldn't prefer that, because my goal would be for the advancement of the gospel in your lives. Theologian Frank Thielman, in one of his commentaries on the book of Philippians, says, it matters, In matters as momentous as life and death, Paul is willing to put the interests of the Philippians ahead of his own. We, on the other hand, are too often ready to destroy the church's unity over whether to place the piano on the left or the right side of the sanctuary. Along with the Philippians in times past, we need to look to Paul as a model. Christ is more important than life itself to him. And the joy and progress of his fellow Christians more important than departing to be with Christ. In the season ahead for us as a church, as we look to our future, we can't know what our circumstances will be. We can't know whether we will experience success or we will experience failure. And maybe and most likely it'll be some of both. But the challenge really is from, the, from Paul and the Philippians, the letter to the Philippians is, is our, is our focus in the right place? Is our, is our priority the life of Christ in me and in you and the advancement of the gospel in our own lives, the progress of our own faith? Because if we are a church that is focused on the advancement of the gospel, then all of those other things take care of themselves and God can use all of the circumstances in our life for our good and for his glory. That's why in the, the last part of chapter 1, he turns the lens toward the Philippians themselves. And in verse 27, he says, Whatever happens, whether I live or die as a result of this trial that I'm about to face, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Underline, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then he says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, underline stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, underline striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. I'd like to suggest that this phrase here, stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, is Paul's theme sentence for this whole letter without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, you understand, as we talked about at the beginning, the Philippians lived in a culture that was not favorable to Christianity. In fact, the Roman emperor Nero was the, the Roman emperor at the time, and Nero has the reputation as being one of the most infamous persecutors of Christians that ever lived. He was the one who first began to throw Christians to the lions and, and, and challenged the, the people of faith in ways that no other leader had done before. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That's a pretty big call. See, he says, this is a sign to, to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Underline, for it has been granted to you. And then underline, to suffer for him. Since you are now going through the same struggle you saw I had, 
and now hear that I still have. See, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to take his own situation and use it as an example to now turn the lens to the Philippian church to say, I know the challenges that you're going through. I know the situation in which you find yourself. I know that you are in a culture that is not favorable to the gospel. In fact, you are experiencing challenges and oppression from the people in your neighborhoods, from the people around you, that they don't understand who you are. They don't understand this good news message. In fact, they're hostile to it. But you have to understand that the greatest threat to the gospel doesn't come from outside the church. It comes from inside the church. And if we don't understand that our priority as saints who are set apart to be the people of God is to advance the gospel in our relationships with one another and how we love and pray for and care for one another, then the disunity that we will experience will, will be a negative sign to the culture around us that, see, we knew that this, there was nothing to this Jesus thing. But instead, Paul says that your unity in the midst of challenges is a sign to those outside of their destruction. Not that we are sending them a message, hey, you guys are all going to be destroyed. He's saying to the Philippians, it's a sign that you are in God's will and that your salvation will be worked out as well. So no matter what you experience, you can trust that God is at work and God will bring your experiences, your suffering, your challenges to a meaningful conclusion. And that whether we live or whether we die, if our focus is to glorify and exalt Christ in our bodies, in our physical lives, in our relationships with one another, then everything that we say and everything we do has meaning and value and purpose. I would love to suggest for us, as we move forward as a church, that we need to be asking ourselves, how are we doing at living in relationship with one another? Because too often we can come to, to church Sunday after Sunday, we can go to classes. We can do all kinds of churchy things. But if we're not really investing in one another's lives and, and, and offering the kind of help and spiritual power that is available through the Holy Spirit, we're not offering one another the very gifts that God has given us to give one another. And I think that's why Paul is trying to help them to see that there is a spiritual reality that we have been invited to live into and experience as people who are set apart for God's purposes. Yes, we are called to preach the gospel, to tell the good news in the world. But like Francis Assisi said, preach the gospel continually, and if necessary, use words. As our friends, as our neighbors, as those who come to visit our church, see the gospel lived out in our relationships with one another, they will affirm and confirm the truth of God's love in us. See, it doesn't mean we're not going to ever have disagreements. It's not that we're going to have difficulties. In fact, as we go through the letter of Philippians, we're going to see that part of the challenge is in the, in the church at Philippi, there was a lot of conflict and difficulty. And that's why Paul wanted to encourage them to say, when it happens, when conflict comes, when disagreements happen, don't let them become the priority. Focus on God's love for each of you. And you can work through all of those things. Would you pray with me? Holy God, as we look to the letter of Philippians, would you remind us of the deep joy that you want us to have in our relationship with your son, Jesus? 
Help us not to focus on our our present circumstances or our fear about the future of our lives, but to live wholly in the present, in the power of your Spirit, and to pray for your Spirit for one another so that we can be lifted up and empowered to live out the gospel as light in the darkness, as food for the hungry, as salt seasoning in a bland world. God, as we continue to worship you, we bring gifts of tithes and offerings. Let them be a fragrant offering for you, not just because of their material resources, but because of the gratitude in our hearts that we bring in our praises, in our thanksgiving, in our offerings, not only of our resources, but of our hearts and our minds and our time and our talent as well. God, we thank you and we love you and we praise you through Jesus Christ our Lord.